Hi, I'm Dan and I am an alcoholic and I'm reading from The Doctor's Opinion, page XXX in the fourth edition. And this is the section where Dr. Silkworth attempts to describe the types of alcoholism. So let me read a bit of this. The classification of alcoholics seems most difficult and in much detail is outside the scope of this book. There are, of course, the psychopaths who are emotionally unstable. We are all familiar with this type. They are always going on the wagon for keeps. They are over remorseful and make many resolutions, but never a decision. There is the type of man who is unwilling to admit that he cannot take a drink. He plans various ways of drinking. He changes his brand and his environment. There is the type who always believes that after being entirely free from alcohol for a period of time, he can take a drink without danger. There is the manic depressive type who is perhaps the least understood by his friends and about whom a whole chapter could be written. Then there are types entirely normal in every respect, except in the effect alcohol has upon them. They are often able, intelligent, friendly people. All these and many others have one symptom in common. They cannot start drinking without developing the phenomenon of craving. This phenomenon, as we suggest, may be the manifestation of an allergy, which differentiates these people and sets them apart as a distinct entity. It has never been by any treatment of which we are familiar permanently eradicated. The only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. Those are difficult paragraphs. Let me start with the end first and then come back through them. And uh, what I want to do is bring this into more modern language and look at alcoholism and addiction, not as different types, as if each is a different kind of disease or a different kind of condition, but to look at addiction as a continuum, starting out from very mild to very severe. And that's the uh, DSM-5 classification, which is the classification of psychiatric or mental illnesses. So at the end, it says that all of these people have one thing in common. They have craving. And that's a pretty dominant sy symptom for alcoholism, and in fact, all substance use disorders tend to have craving. But believe it or not, everybody doesn't have craving who actually suffers from advanced mm -hmm. stages of alcohol. So we'll get to that in a minute. The recommendation is a good one, and it still remains the best recommendation. That is, if a person has severe substance use disorder, the only treatment right now is abstinence. The one exception I'm going to make to that is that people who have opioid use disorder, some will definitely benefit by using an opioid replacement like either methadone or suboxone to have them be able to live a normal life and not be subjected to the dangers of, of using substances. That really runs counter to our, our teaching of this one phrase in the AA book, which is absolute absence is the only treatment. 
And I think we have to just take that with, yes, in almost all cases, that's true. There are some exceptions to that in which we save lives by using substitution. So let me go back to the classification. There's the normal person who, if they drink, they can't stop. They get compulsion. There's the psychopath. Silkworth uses that word. We use that differently today. Psychopath usually means a criminal kind of behavior. What he's referring to here is people who have psychiatric conditions. We call that dual diagnosis today. And it could be somebody who has bipolar disease, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder, all kinds of other conditions. Then they talk about the person who is normal in every way, except when they drink. They have pure alcoholism. That is a carryover from the 30s and from the early history of AA, <clears throat> where the early founders were really pretty convinced there was something called pure alcoholic. And if you'll remember in the traditions, they even get into the idea, do we want anybody in our group who isn't a pure alcoholic? Well, we've given up that idea entirely. There's nobody who's a pure anything anymore in mm -hmm. this holistic way of looking at it. What we now know, or what we think, is that substance abuse can be thought of more as a learning situation. We learn how to be addicted. Now, we as me, Dan, isn't learning how to be addicted, but the, my brain is the brain that changes to pursue this particular substance because my brain has formed the neural pathways and the neural connections that say, this is good for me, do it. And it sets up this phenomenon of craving mm -hmm. uh, to get me to do it uh, on over and over. So where the DSM-5 has us today is they have 11 characteristics. And these 11 characteristics are found in addicts and alcoholics. But instead of saying there's the person who can do, they're normal in every way except for craving, that could be the case. But here's how the DSM-5 classifies it today. That if an individual has two or three of these 11 symptoms, we then say they have mild substance use disorder or have mild alcohol use disorder. You notice we're not calling them alcoholics. You notice we're not calling them addicted. We're saying they have a substance use disorder, mild. Two to three criteria. If they have four to five criteria, in other words, four to five of these symptoms, then we say they have moderate substance use disorder. And if they have six or more of these criteria, then we say they have severe substance use disorder. Now, to translate this into the way we used to describe it, somebody who has mild substance use disorder, it's, it's possible for them to say, God, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm just going to stop drinking and can. They really can do it. Would Alcoholics Anonymous benefit them? Absolutely. A spiritual program will benefit anybody, actually. If they have moderate, they may or they may not be able to stop on their own. If they have these six or more of these criteria, it's unlikely they're going to be able to stop on their own. And they more than likely have what we used to call dependent alcoholism. Or So let's look at what these 11 are. We use higher amounts 
of the substance than we intended. I only want to have one or two drinks. Now I'm going to have, I can't just have two drinks. I have more. I'm unsuccessful at controlling what I do. I intend only to have two today, but I've ended up having six. I really, I'm unsuccessful to control. I lose significant time obtaining, consuming, or recovering from the drug or alcohol. I miss Monday or Tuesday work because I'm hungover. That would be a lost time. Craving, we've talked about that one. Failure to fulfill obligations because I'm using. I'm falling asleep at night. I'm not a very good husband and father. I'm drinking at night. I use it despite having social and interpersonal problems. Nobody wants to work with you anymore. You're so angry and hostile. That would be another one. I use alcohol in place of social work or recreational activities. I'd rather sit home and drink rather than go out to dinner with friends. Or if I go out to dinner with friends, I know I'm going to have more and I'm going to make a fool of myself. Mm. I use despite physical or psychological problems. My doctor told me my liver is bad and I still can't stop or that I am having other symptoms. And then the two that you don't have to have, but they are included, are tolerance, meaning I need more and more and more to get the effect I want, or withdrawal. When I don't drink, and this is where the hair of the dog comes in, if I'm drinking so much in the morning, I'm going to have the shakes, I'm withdrawing from alcohol, and so I need to have an eye opener or the hair of the dog. So those are the 11 symptoms, six or more is severe alcohol use disorder. Two or three, and what could those two or three be? Craving could be one of them. Mm -hmm. Unsuccessful attempts to reduce could be one. And uh, I'm using more than I want to. Those are three. Mm -hmm. Is that severe alcohol use disorder? No, that would be called mild alcohol use disorder. So you see how this new way of looking at it gives us everybody Everybody who drinks is not an alcoholic. We know that. And everybody who craves is not an mm -hmm. alcoholic. Okay, so that, that's how we're thinking about it. The other thing we're thinking about is alcohol for mo alcoholism or drug addiction for most of us is a progression. Almost nobody becomes an alcoholic or a drug addict after one use. Almost nobody. There are going to be some. But it's really not common. It takes several times to train the brain mm -hmm. to come to expect this, to want it. And, and it takes, for alcohol, the usual is probably years. For other substances, it can be weeks or months. And it could be that it takes only a couple days for others. And, and one that takes a very little time is actually nicotine doesn't take very much experience with nicotine to become addicted to. So that's pretty much where I think this chapter in Dr. Silkworth's letter uh, is today. Yeah. Did Thank I you. get it? Huh? Did I get the criteria? Yeah, you did. You did. <laughs> right now. Something that I wanted to go back to where you say, we're talking about the only relief we have to suggest is entire abstinence. And you said... Now, there's a couple of exceptions now, and you named... Methadone. Methadone. And buprenorphine. Okay. 
let me bring this up because I think it's important for people to hear. The background is I've been an alcohol and drug counselor for 35 years. I'm also an LPC. And most of the work that I've done has been with the methadone. I've dealt with all of it. And, and what I have found, if you're truly an addict or an alcoholic, I would have people come in and they would get their methadone. But what I found over 90% of the time was that they were still using, most of the time it was marijuana or some kind of uh, mood-altering drug, some pill, you know, uppers, downers, whatever. And sooner or later, they would go back to using what their drug of choice was. Now, that's, that was my experience. Well, you have much more experience with that population than I have. I, my background is as a physician, mm -hmm. uh, and although I've t cared for a number of people with substance use disorder, at that serious stage, I have not. Mm -hmm. You as a counselor, Rusty, I, I think have probably had your fair share or more than your fair share of dual diagnosis people, mm -hmm. people who are suffering from multiple situations that it isn't simply one thing or another. That is true, and, yes. And therefore, it, it becomes much more difficult to tease out what is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. The thing that I've been totally convinced in my years as a physician is the patient is very smart. The mm -hmm. patient knows best. And that people are really good at treating their own symptoms. And we see that right now with the uh, legalization of marijuana in many states, mm -hmm. legalization for uh, medical marijuana, there's an implication that this is a good treatment for some things. And it does seem to be helpful for people who mm -hmm. suffer from generalized anxiety disorder and not particularly helpful for depression, but maybe mm -hmm. some. Uh, but it also has side effects. Mm -hmm. uh, and But people know this helps me. I feel better. I can function easier on it. I have seen a number of people with uh, opioid use disorder who, in fact, do resort to street opioids largely because the recent pressure on prescription of opioids has really reduced the availability yes. of prescription opioids. Yes. And so now we are seeing these deaths occurring from street opioids laced with, with fentanyl. fentanyl. Bottom line, uh, the, do people often go back, this is a chronic disease, yeah. this is a chronic situation, life changes and at, with every life change, things are going to adapt and people are going to do what feels best to them, whether or not it's a really strongly functioning brain or a brain that's been distorted by experiences in the past. Mm -hmm. And that's where people like you come in to help them sort through this. And where AA comes in, where mm -hmm. we sit and can have a group of people who talk about this and learn from each other and particularly right. learn the courage, experience, strength, and that, that comes from experience, strength and, strength, and hope of coming through life's problems. Dan, the 11 items, what are they called? Well, those are called the DSM-5 criteria for substance use disorder. Because as you went through the list in talking about six or more is considered dependent. Serious. I hear my story. 
Mm -hmm. I'm checking off yes to 11 boxes, mm -hmm. some more than others. And particularly what I heard was you appear to be drunk or high every day when you come to work. You're argumentative and combative conversationally. Your people don't want to work with you anymore. And you always call in on Tuesday. I mean, you told my story. That is part of my story. And as you're going through these DSM categories, I'm like, okay, so this is me, the dependent alcoholic in remission. But if I'm in remission and I'm practicing total abstinence, am I still a dependent alcoholic? Excellent question. Uh, truly an excellent question. If we, if we use the AA tradition, the answer is absolutely. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, whatever level you are, always, you know, that's the tradition. From the scientific standpoint, I don't know the answer to that. Maybe Rusty does, but I really don't know the answer. I do know that in brain scans of long-term recovery people, people who have been abstinent, and the other caveat, they've been abstinent and in recovery, which is very different because remember, we're talking about healing the brain. Abstinence doesn't heal the brain. You got to have that uh, psychosocial dynamic of being in a community of recovering people and practicing, if we're using the AA tradition, the 12 steps in order to heal the brain. It's that meditation and prayer and beliefs and, and fellowship that make the difference. So to answer your question, would you still meet the criteria for such severe substance use disorder? Rusty can answer that question. I would say that you, what I would put down on your diagnosis is that you would be severe substance use disorder in remission. Mm -hmm. And at five years, you would be in, I would add, in long-term remission. So I would say you're in remission. It's just like someone who has breast cancer. They are in breast cancer uh, 20 or 30 years in remission, mm -hmm. or they're cured from breast cancer 30 years later. Does that answer your question? But we're never cured from our alcoholism the, or our addictive behaviors. The current theories are along that line, meaning that those neural pathways that have been down-regulated, that had us using every, doing all the 11 things, those pathways are still able to be reactivated. They aren't powerful, they aren't strong today, but should the right circumstances come along, they all, they'll reactivate. And there are dozens of stories in the big book that show that reactivation. The reason I ask is <clears throat> I am of the belief, as it talks about in the book, is that if I use alcohol again, I'm going to go right back to the same place, the same level of addiction that I had previously. And for me, that's experienced through nicotine. By stopping nicotine and after I had not used nicotine for a long period of time, years, when I stopped drinking, the first thing I did was walk to the convenience store, bought a pack of cigarettes, and was almost immediately back to where I was before. Mm -hmm. And that is my example to myself that I know if I ever use my substance again, which is alcohol, that I'm going to be right back to the same place. The one thing I wish you'd add to that, I agree with that entirely. From a brain neurochemistry aspect, that is almost, I think it's almost positively true. I don't know the science. I can't quote 
the studies. What I want you to add to that, though, is if I have a drink and I am in recovery, I don't know that you'll necessarily go right back to where you were. The problem is most people who have that drink, have that relapse, have stopped recovery before they, they relapse. And that, that's one of the reasons that we say meeting makers make it. I, I'm less likely to pick it up if I'm in a recovery group and feel accountable and responsible and, you know, all of that kind of thing. Plus, my, I value my spiritual life now that I feel would be distorted by doing something against the new values that I have so, so well. Would the brain go back? If I am of the belief that if you're 10 years, five years in recovery, it's going to take a little bit of time for the brain to go back to where it was before. What I haven't seen much of in my years in AA and as a, a physician, I haven't seen many people who have done that while they're active in recovery. How about you, Rusty? Yeah, the same thing, Dan. Uh, it I've seen people that with 19, 20 years go back out, 5, 7, 10 years. I've seen a lot of them come back in. I've heard of a lot of people dying while they're out here. I mean, we go to funerals all the time. The phenomena uh, of the disease of alcoholism to me. Mm -hmm. So for my own self, and I've been here a while, that's why I still go to meetings all the time. That's why I still uh, have sponsorship. That's why I continue to work the principles of the AA program because it has worked so well in my life that why would I not? But I've seen guys that, and, and, and ladies, that they start to drift away. Like Dan talked about, they get in a funk or something go, happens to them and they quit going to meetings, they're not calling anybody, and next thing you know, they're, they're back out there. I just don't want to be one of those. You know, our lives, and I know this for Dan and for you too, our lives just continually uh, get better. Not to say that we don't have problems, but we just handle those problems. Dan Rusty, thanks for being here today. This has been a production of childrenofchaos.net, and we invite you to share your thoughts with us via email to comments at childrenofchaos.net. Children of Chaos is a forum to discuss topics related to and in concert with addiction and recovery in America, is not affiliated with, endorsed, or financed by any recovery or treatment program, organization, or institution. Any views, thoughts, or opinions expressed by an individual in this venue are solely that of the individual and do not reflect the views, policies, or position of any specific recovery-based entity or organization.